Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. This time we're getting right down into the earth and we are talking specifically about pasture. I'm talking to Tim Williams, a Kiwi, a native New Zealander who grew up in farming, um, tried the intensive route on dairy farms out there and has found himself uh, through the usual journey of life to farming down in Cornwall and also working as a consultant, uh, leading kind of the regenerative agriculture movement in this country, has a lot of really interesting things to say about it. Um, But look, I'm just going to hand over straight away to him. So this is Tim Williams for the Sellerman Podcast. I grew up on a farm in New Zealand, um, quite a sort of standard chef and beef conventional operation as a kid. um, And we worked pretty hard. My dad worked pretty hard most of his life. Stress, a lot of stress, a lot of debt, um, what they call rogenomics, which is when they removed the subsidies from the New Zealand farmers in the 80s. And droughts and, and just kind of struggled through as farmers, as children, everything was a bit stressful and wasn't really much fun. Um, but I sort of worked with my dad and worked for other farmers in New Zealand, neighbours and things, doing a bit of pocket money. And I wasn't really into farming. When I left and went to university, I wasn't really into farming. So I actually started doing a, a bachelor's degree in viticulture and enology at Lincoln University. So that's winemaking and um, growing grapes, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I thought, this isn't for me. Went and worked on a crayfish boat randomly for a season. Realized that wasn't for me either. So I went back to uni picked up some agricultural papers um, and then randomly went back to farming and ended up farming in the dairy industry in New Zealand, which at the time wasn't that bad. And I was milking about 350 cows on a pretty low key operation, but we were using a lot of nitrogen um, and it was a bit of an eye-opener then as well, how much nitrogen used. So basically we would chase the cows with nitrogen in terms of every rotation so these are cows that are because we're talking new zealand and it's all you know primarily pasture fed you know these are cows that are technically pasture fed because there's this sort of uh i guess umbrella term that i feel like includes an awful lot of different practices pasture fed meat or in the case of cheeses you know pasture fed animals and you know there's this sort of seal of approval but actually what you're describing is not is pretty intensive like that's quite an intensive system yeah i mean the dairy industry in new zealand is extremely intensive it is pasture fed but you can still have a monoculture of rye grass pump a lot of artificial nitrogen into the system and grow grass Mm. and make milk from that and technically that is grass-fed milk and i think that's where new zealand has really cornered the market for grass-fed milk because it's got such a good reputation as a producer of grass-fed milk or pasture-fed milk um, internationally. But actually, unfortunately, the reality of the situation is that that industry has actually destroyed New Zealand in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, like the the state of the waterways, the state of the land. Um, As a child growing up, all the farms around me where I grew up are now dairy support farms, um, it's all the rivers, the lakes, you know, you can't really swim in them anymore. It's crazy. The difference from when I left New Zealand back in 2005 to when I went back um, last year, 2019, 
the difference is is immense you know we used to go and swim in these beautiful clear rivers on our farm or next door and and now there's some rivers you can't even swim in it is ridiculous um, and that's when you know that sort of intensive um style of farming really caught me and i didn't quite understand it at the time because the farm that i grew up on because we didn't really have any money we didn't apply fertilizer we didn't buy and feed we just kept animals on on grassland basically mm. um, yeah so so when when i was milking cows i actually met an english girl who was traveling at the time and from there that was back in 2004 and then i came to london went from the west coast of the south island directly into east london which was a bit of an eye-opener it was loads of fun so then worked in in an office in london did the typical oe thing um got fed up with that but then i just chose knowing what i knew to get into organic farming basically so has your career been a response in a sense to seeing I guess the degradation perhaps of, uh, you know, of landscape and, and environment that the intensive farming has. Yeah, totally. And also one of the first farming experiences I had in the UK, we were growing these really beautiful pedigree Sussex animals, but because there was no market for them, uh, the farmer was just, we were just finishing them in barns with like beefcake. And I'd never heard of beefcake and I didn't know what it was. I used to take the tractor down to this feed mill not far from the farm and fill up with a bit like 10 tonne of feed at a time and we'd just basically be feeding that to the cattle with potatoes and a little bit of straw and I was just like what what the hell are we doing here um, and that's when I was like right I have to get into this organic system and then I pretty much immediately found a job working in an organic a really beautiful organic farm under the Starhead Estate. And just worked up from there really, and thought that, you know, um, organics was the pinnacle. Um, but then I realized that there's more to it than that. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I returned back to New Zealand, I worked on a big station over there called Glendu Station. And that's when I started to understand the concepts from the likes of Joel Salatin, Christine Jones, Alan Savory, and I did a lot of reading back then. And we actually ran a really, really awesome uh, system, which is like a Joel Salatin system, running the chickens behind the kettle on the flats, and then got into like the, the real holistic grazing side of things. But um, the whole sort of Alan Savory model didn't really gel with me. I just found it a bit sort of wishy-washy. Can you lay out the differences between the two? Because I'm, so I suppose a little bit of background for me, I'm a cheesemonger by day. Um, that is my job. And I started this podcast two years ago now. There was a bit of a break, but mainly just talking to cheese producers about their product and, you know, how they get it to market. And that. And I didn't really go any deeper than that. I sort of started almost with the cheese, if you like. Um, but in a sense, through 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 the lockdown through this experience you know through you suddenly you know your eyes are open to kind of the fragility of all sorts of different systems that we've kind of just sort of taken for granted and relied on and you know these people these these are names that are familiar to me but actually when you describe the system i'm i'm still new to this so i'm kind of on a bit of a discovery journey myself well i understand like the holistic side of things but there's a lot of sort of 
um, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but stuff that I find quite irrelevant. So what I'm trying to, where I'm coming from, it's a very practical um, sort of base. You know, everything I've learned over the years has, has been through doing it myself. I studied organics at a master's level. And at the time I was, you know, what they're teaching me, I was like, well, you know, this is very, very old information. And I, and I kind of found that with the, with the savory thing as well, um, that they weren't really addressing the, like the real science and the practicalities behind it. It was a bit sort of, you know, this whole holistic decision-making process. And you kind of get caught up in that mm. rather than the actual practical application of the principles of regenerative farming. And I, I really like the, like the Terragenesis sort of, um, there's a really good website that's, I think it's www.regenerativeagriculturedefinition.com. And, it, and it's talking about things like, you know, yes, there's the functional things like no-till, keep the soil covered, all that, you know, zero inputs, all that sort of thing. But then it's also talking about these levels and how, you know, as a, as a person, it's almost how your land evolves over time and you start looking at it through completely different eyes and understanding that what you do on that land has implications further, further down the line. And, you know, the top level is, is that ultimate understanding of that piece of land and finding that absolute niche for that land. And that's, that's, that's kind of what brought me back to Cornwall because I'm a Williams. My ancestors came from Cornwall. They were tin miners from Penzance. And it's almost like I've gone full circle. So in New Zealand, all the grassland is introduced. All the beef breeds are introduced. There's no native, well, there's very little native grassland in New Zealand. There's no native ruminant animals in New Zealand. So I was like, well, if I really, really want to get into this regenerative thinking, I need to be somewhere where my actions fit the nature of that um, location, basically. And I think that's, that's where it's at now is that, you know, you can really, really drill deep into, it, it's basically about working with nature, mm. but it's about the ecology of the nature and the interaction. So there's a really, really intimate interaction between a ruminant animal, a grassland and the soil. And you can't have a grassland and a functional soil without that ruminant animal in my mind. Um, and so that's, you know, that's the, that's, I think that's a pinnacle. And then understanding like the actual native species that grow on your land that you're stewarding and the, and the hedges and the trees and understanding what it was like back in the day if it was truly regenerated. And in New Zealand, that is native bush. Um, whereas over here, my understanding is that it was more of a, a um, sort of a, a complex sort of rotation between woodland and grassland and mm. forever cycling. So, you know, and that's kind of where I'm at now. I suppose the interesting thing for me about organic is that it's sort of been co-opted a bit because you can jump through certain legal hoops and call your product organic, but that doesn't, you know, that, that leaves a lot of room for manoeuvre, I, I think. But what you're describing is, is that actually it's almost farming on a sort of micro level in that, you know, each farm will, by its necessity in the systems you're describing, be slightly different from one, even if it was another regenerative agriculture sort of ethos farm just up the valley, because they're, you know, we're sort of talking terroir a little bit, you know, their kind of landscape and things like that will be slightly different or someone will have more woodland or so it's, 
you're kind of advocating a a, a system that that is all about keying into a specific local ecology and finding ways to kind of ride that wave rather than you know put concrete piles down and 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 like force nature to go in the direction you want it to and that's the beauty of working with like the permanent pasture system within the uk is that you know it's it's already there the the nature's there the grasslands there the seed banks there everything's there and when you start to think about native breeds and things like that then there will be some intricate relationship between that animal or that plant that links into that soil so you know you, you're just kind of reconnecting that but with the difference between so you know some people might say well that's just rewilding but then mm. the thing about regenerative is that you are healing the land at the same time so you're actually encouraging these uh, systems and enhancing them so that then they're productive and then you can exploit that that cycle to produce food and fiber in a natural, you know, nutrient-dense way. Because you're working with these systems that are perfect natural systems, you know, the inputs are less. The health of your animals is going to be a lot higher. If you can get your soil health up and your plant health up, then your animal health is going to be phenomenal. And that's something that I realized in, in New Zealand where I was getting these amazing growth rates. And the animals, when you really, really tweak it and really understand it, the animal health is phenomenal and you get these beautiful shiny fat animals that are just thriving and they're happy and it's you know it turns farming into like a really pleasurable thing i've i've been full circle you know i was i was vegetarian for a while and i really as a farmer the biggest thing that i've struggled with is controlling animals in order to then eat them which you know when I think about it too much, I still find it quite bizarre that we're sort of corralling these animals into these pens to then kill them and eat them without showing any respect. And whereas I see that the animals are required as part of a greater system, as you know, as as a as a the ecology of the world basically. Um, and that's kind of when I really got excited about it. You know, there's a lot of harmony and and you know nature is kind of taking the lead in a way which is such a in you know it's in many ways it's an ancient way of doing things but really for our current culture it's such a sort of new idea as well um i think what's interesting for me though is you've gone down to cornwall which you know anyone who's been to cornwall in the summertime is incredibly green and richly kind of colored and full of health you know you pop a seed in the ground in cornwall and it'll probably grow twice as fast as it will in suffolk say I'm really interested to know how you would go about persuading farmers who are perhaps toying with the idea, but say they're in, I don't know, they're a dairy farm in Lincolnshire, say. How how would your process be to help bring them along? Because you can't just take the lessons you've learned in Cornwall and apply them to a farm in Lincolnshire. You, you know, there has to be a adaptation, I suppose. And, and the problem, I mean, it's easy for a beef farmer. And that's probably why I've taken this route, because, you know, a beef animal, especially if you go for a rib, uh, like a more localized breed, like a red ruby or something like that, that thrives on permanent pasture. Whereas the dairy industry is quite different because the animals have been bred to be these absolute machines that just pump milk out. I went to a farm the other day to talk to a guy at 450 Holstein Frisians and uh, let out to grass probably about a third of their life 
and that milking, that producing 10,000 litres a year per cow, it's 4.35 million litres going into Sainsbury's. And he's buying in probably about 50% of their feed requirements. And I'm just like, well, I just don't know where to start because these animals would just aren't designed for a grass-based system because they're so far removed from their natural... <laughs> well, they are barn dwellers, really, when you're talking on that scale. You know, we're not talking even like a kind of a Jersey or a Montbelliard or something like that that's a bit hardier and perhaps... Yeah, exactly. So then you have to... You have to look at your system and you've got to say, okay, well, you know, is the first thing to change is your mindset. Do I really want to change my mindset? Do I want to focus on things, other things than money and production and yield? I mean, if you're, if you're milking, you know, if you're producing four and a half million litres at 30p a litre, mm. that's, you know, that's a lot of money. Whereas you kind of have to change your thinking and actually say, well, there's, you know, what am I doing to the land? What am I doing to the waterways, you know? And then, and then you change your mindset and you understand what am I producing? Well, at the moment I'm producing white water. But if I change my breeding stock and if I create a more natural system and if the consumer appreciates that, and, and this is the thing with cheese, if the consumer appreciates the value of that product, the higher nutrient quality, the higher flavour, the, the, the true value of that food, then it ties back into the whole system. And that is a difficulty, uh, particularly in this country, is people don't really value food as much as they should. I mean, we move, obviously, you probably move in similar circles, and we understand, you know, I've got a, a friend up the road who produces some of the best vegetables in the country, and we're producing some of the best sheep in the country. Well, I think so. A few other people think so. But, you know, we're, we're really pushing boundaries on, on trying to get that sort of nutrient density up and things like that. But not everyone is comfortable with that. So that's always going to be the challenge, especially with this whole high yielding. We need to understand that we have to get away from yield and understand that, you know, as yield increases, nutrient density decreases. So we should be really farming for nutrients and we're not. We're farming for yield. I, I'm very privileged to have started my career in the cheese industry, working for one of the best wholesalers in London, dealing with chefs that care about provenance, that care about all the things you're talking about. So, you know, there was it was only the, the best and farmed in the right way kind of thing. But even, you know, so price was less of an issue. But I suppose what we're talking about when people when we say that people are not interested in nutrient rich food, I'm not I, I think they probably are. But what they're more interested in is what's in their wallet. The challenge is to achieve that nutrient-rich product at a price that is sensible. Not you're not going to compete with massive-scale factory farming because, but it's it's sort of bringing it to a level where it's not like, you know, thirty pounds a kilo for a piece of cheddar, which just people just won't engage with that. Most people won't engage with that. Exactly, and I think like with this farm here in Cornwall, so I'm focusing on soil health. And the animals I, are a byproduct of that. And, you know, I've worked a lot in the past in producing really, really high-end meat um, because that's, you know, meat is my thing. But actually, you couldn't sell as much, as much meat as I'm going to produce off this farm through those sorts of channels. No. So, I, as, you know, in my budgets, I'm just budgeting for selling my animal at the same price as everyone else sells the animal. Mm. And that could be conventional, you know, barn raised 
fed loads of barley or whatever, you know. If I can get a thousand to twelve hundred pounds for my cattle at the end of the day, it makes my budgets work. And because this system of farming requires no inputs or very little or biological amendments that can actually make yourself, the cost structure is so low that you don't have to chase those markets. So you can produce extremely nutrient dense food for a very low cost. It's the barrier then, that mindset that you're talking about. Are people just kind of, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to see how this, this system isn't a good system. Do you see what I mean? Why it wouldn't be attractive to everybody, whether it's meat or, or dairy for that. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, French studies that, that sort of categorically show that, that you know, complex grass fed. So not, not just your monoculture, but like all sorts of different herbal lays and delicious things in there for the, for the cattle produces more delicious, particularly hard cheese. So there's the flavour, but also what you're describing is that the bottom line is looked after as well. So what is the barrier to people transferring to this style? It's a mindset thing. It's a complete mindset. In New Zealand, there's a wave of, <laughs> there's an extreme wave of regenerative agriculture taking place in New Zealand but right now. Um, I've got friends who have set up a thing called Quorum Sense and they're, they're travelling throughout New Zealand on like a, a, a road trip, basically educating farmers about regenerative agriculture. And the same is in Australia and America as well. It's just, I think because the, and this is going to upset a few people too, but because of the way the subsidy system is um, based in the UK, you've got a crutch to fall back on. Mm. And the subsidy system is not designed for this type of farming. You know, natural England would look at my stocking densities and would freak out, mm. but they don't understand that actually I need the stocking densities to have the impact to improve the soil. And the animals are super happy because they are mobbed up. I'm, I mean, I'm having an argument on the PFLA forum right now um, about this. And, you know, it's, a, it's just a lack of understanding, not actually seeing it in practice. And there are some really amazing producers in the UK that are doing this. Um, they're just not shouting from the rooftops. But there is... You know, there is still that sort of old guard that like to protect the ground. And there's, yeah, there's, there's a lot of politics to it. It's very complex. Um, I'm just lucky that I can come into this as a New Zealander um, with no sort of back history and be a bit cheeky and just do what I want to do, essentially. And um, I've been very, very fortunate to find this opportunity. But the funny thing is, because I've, I've seen, because I've, I've got this opportunity, both of the neighbours on either side of the farm here have approached me to explore something similar. So now instead of running one farm, I'm running three farms. Um, <laughs> because they can see that actually the person that's managing their land at the moment is, is is just damaging their land and they're making the gains. And, and there's an opportunity, a real opportunity for new ancient farmers. And this is gonna happen in the next five years as the BPS, as they remove the BPS, there's gonna be a lot of land come available. And this type of farming, you know, for someone like me, who has no capital, has very little savings, I can come to the UK and now I'm gonna be running three farms. Mm. You know, it's, it's amazing. So there is, there is an opportunity, but definitely I think mindset is, as one and the traditional nature how do we how do we get that message across and how are you you know what are your techniques for getting people to listen i suppose 
Um, I think for me, I mean, I've been shouting about this for a long, 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 long time. Yeah. You know, I've been working in organics for a long time. I'm saying people, or like all my friends, I'm like, why, why do you even eat conventional food? You know, it's, it's full of toxins. It's very little nutrient density. What, what I just don't understand. If you've got the choice to, especially in this country, when organics is so um, attainable, mm. and that's you know for a slightly more premium, maybe twenty percent, fifty percent premium, but at the end of the day, it's yeah, it's it's a funny one. So basically, instead of preaching about it, which I have done for many many years, I'm just going to do it, mm. and I'm going to highlight it and demonstrate it, and that's the beauty of this place here is that. And it's quite sort of difficult for me at the moment because I can't demonstrate it. But in, the, in New Zealand, when I was farming over there, it was all about demonstration. And I can bring people to the farm and I can show them my animals and I can show them that they're happy and healthy and shiny and beautiful and functioning well and growing well. And then, you know, so this farm's going to be amazing because we've got the ability, there's a, a, a farmhouse in the middle of the farm that we are kind of, looking into um, converting into sort of a B&B type, mm. restaurant type situation. And then, you know, we can draw our food into there. We can demonstrate what we're doing. I just, I really struggle to see why what you're describing isn't, isn't the way forward. I suppose, I suppose one of the things that comes up is how is it transferable, you know, on a scale that feeds enough people? Farmers chase a market. They're not, they're not, I mean, this is going to be a broad generalization, but Farmers are chasing a price. They're chasing a market. If you're a big conventional arable guy, it doesn't matter if your feed is going, if your wheat's going for feed wheat or, you know, they don't really think about it. They're just producing yields. As long as they get paid for the, the best money that they can for the quality of their product. I've worked on farms where we've dumped trailer loads and trailer loads of potatoes because the market has gone. So there's certain points that during... Um, during the year where food prices will be higher than others. You know, you see it with lamb, you see it with potatoes. In New Zealand, we saw crayfish. And so the whole market structure is wrong. You can trade food on a commodities market. You can trade wheat on a commodities market. You know, it's not the fact that the food isn't there. It is. We're producing far too much food. We're wasting far too much food about a third of all food produced actually ends up on people's plates. We have an obesity epidemic. People are eating far too much food. They're not getting the nutrients. Let's look at nutrient density. Let's look at reducing waste. Let's look at understanding food culture and access to food. You know, we are, I can produce by year three on 300 acres, I will be, growing 300 head of cattle and they will be gaining about a kilo of live weight a day at least um, and that is you know that's pretty good really um, in terms of production I think the production narrative is just so unfounded and I've heard it time and time and time again and the problem with chasing production yield I said it before as yield increases, nutrient density goes down. So you have to eat more food. So if you, because the nutrients aren't there, so you're just diluting your food. So of course you have to eat more, so you have to produce more. It's just this horrible, vicious cycle. Whereas if we concentrate on healthy food that's produced in a natural way, 
you, you actually feel satiated easier. You know, your body recognizes that you're getting the nutrients. You don't actually need to eat. And then, you know, all these diet related illnesses are reversed. So, you know, we won't even go there, but we all, you know, don't start me on that one. What's the future that you're working towards? So this project I've got here, it's a five year project and I really want to push the envelope. Um, and next door I'm taking on a project which is similar. It's, a, you know, it's going to tie into this farm. So we're going to work with the landowners there to create this really beautiful farm. There, here, we're going to tie it all in together. And then hopefully like in the future when this new um, environmental land management scheme comes into play, you know, we might be able to help people understand this whole public money for public goods thing and create like a really viable, vibrant uh, farming system that showcases a really model way of producing food. And, you know, this, the sky's the limit. Region Ag is, is a massive way. So that was Tim Williams there, aka Pasture Geek. Check him out on Instagram. Go and have a look at his website. Loads of really interesting stuff. Uh, he's often popping up in various webinars. If the subject of soil and pasture is there, then Tim's probably somewhere there and thereabouts. Um, I think this is such a pressing time for a discussion around pasture, and I'm really uh, looking forward to finding out a bit more about you know pasture-fed uh, uh, ruminants, but also I think probably looking closer into the world of dairy and can there really be effectively a pasture-led movement in cheese and dairy? Let's see. Now's the time to find out. See you next time for the Selliman Podcast. The Selliman Podcast is produced by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about Selliman, go to Selliman Sam on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website, selliman.co.uk. Thank you.